Well, John chapter 14, you can be opening back up to chapter 14 and finding verse 12 is where we'll begin in just a moment. Jesus is alone with his disciples on the evening before which he will be arrested. And as soon as as Judas left the room, Jesus raised the matter of his departure, his imminent departure. He's been talking with them about this ever since then. He's given them some commands in view of his leaving. But mostly what he's been doing is working to comfort them. And so he's done a number of things already. He has cast their eyes to their heavenly reward that awaits them. The early verses of this chapter, we saw that. Christ has taught them the true nature of what it's been to be with him, what it is that they've come to know and see as they've lived with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You have seen him, you know him. We heard these things last week. This morning, our Lord starts to get more specific with them about this departure that he is about to make. It may be that a good summary for what we're going to see this morning could be this. We could summarize it as, you don't know it yet, but my departure is good news. This is what we're going to hear from him this week and next week. So this is a part one of something that we'll pick up and finish next week. We can list out the points that Jesus makes this morning pretty easily. Let me do that here as we start, for those of you taking notes. Uh, But what we're going to find, I think, is that each of these three things that we're going to see is is, is far richer and more significant than they seem on the surface. He has some incredible things to tell them this morning and to tell us. So if we're thinking of it in terms of good news about his departure, he's giving them three pieces of good news uh, in what we will cover this morning. We'll we'll get as far as verse 17. The first piece of good news we're going to see about his departure is for him to tell them that his departure is going to inaugurate a glorious new age in redemptive history. Something significant is going to change because he is departing to go to the Father. That'll be number one. Secondly, we'll hear from him that in terms of his departure, he comforts them with the news that their interaction with him is going to continue in his departure. Verses 13 and 14, we'll bring that up. And then thirdly and finally, and maybe most significantly in terms of where he's headed from here, his departure is good news because at his departure, another helper is going to come to them. That'll be verses 15 to 17. And next week, we're going to find that it's that third point about the coming of another helper that Jesus will then fixate on and expand upon in verses 18 and following. To begin with this section this morning, I'd like us to read verses 12 to 31. Although, as I said, we'll just focus on verses 12 to 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John 14, beginning at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. What do you think, having heard that? Are there some things coming to us in these verses, some big things? some weighty things. <clears throat> Three pieces of good news that we're focusing on this morning, and all of them related to the fact that he is departing. The first piece of good news starts in verse 12. And my goodness, what a statement we begin with there. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Greater works than these will he do. What are we to make of a statement like that? Much has been made of a statement like that, hasn't it? What are we to make of it? And we should start by ruling out some things. We can rule out, for example, the notion that Greater things here just means more things. Some have tried to explain it in that way. 
that because Jesus only ministered for three years and the church will span thousands of years, that it's the quantity of works that he's talking about here. The problem is that just isn't what he said. It doesn't do justice to his words. He had a way to say more works than these, if he'd meant to say that. But he didn't say that. He said greater works than these will he do. So we can't be content with just a thought of quantity in terms of numbers. Another thing we can rule out requires a little bit more consideration. I think we can rule out the thought that greater things means something like more spectacular things, more visually spectacular things than these will he do. We could rule that out simply because of the extent of the works that Jesus has done in his earthly ministry. What would more spectacular even look like compared to what Jesus has done? Compared to raising a man from the dead, multiplying bread and fish spontaneously from nothing, turning water into wine. What works has any man done since Christ that are more spectacular than those things? I think we can rule that understanding out here. But if Jesus does not mean either of those, then what does he mean? And to answer that, I would have you notice a couple of things with me. One is to notice that Jesus has actually said this before. And it's always helpful to see more than one place where something is talked about because sometimes details come in that can help us to figure out a meaning. Uh, listen to what was said, or you may want to look at this, back in John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. He said this, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For, that's significant, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now what just happened right before this is that he had just healed the lame man. So you could argue that he's just saying he's going to do more spectacular things than healing the lame. And of course it's true that he will do more spectacular things than that. But again, I don't think that that's his central point here. Because notice the explanation that he gives in verse 21. He said, greater works than these will he show you, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So the greater works here are tied to the Son's work in bringing life to the dead. He, he ties it directly to this giving of life. And that's important because you remember that in John's gospel, the life that Jesus has come to give, has come to bring, is new life, spiritual life, eternal life, salvation life. He does bring physical resurrection. He raises Lazarus from the dead, but he does it as a mere visual, as an example in the physical realm of his ability to bring this kind of life. It's the granting of life that Jesus is saying is going to increase. And in our text, if you've left John 14, you can come back. When he says in verse 12 that those who believe in him will do the works that he does and greater works will he do. We could think of it like this. 
think of what is characterized, what they have all seen in his earthly ministry. Whereas Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was marked in particular by the, by the demonstration of signs, right? By the restoration of physical life. Everywhere he went, constant, massive healings of, of disease and injury. And as we've said, even physical resurrection. And while we find in the book of Acts that the apostles do some of those things as well, what characterizes God's work in them after Jesus ascends is going to be the bringing of true life, of eternal life, through preaching and through conversion. And the increased giving of that life is what Jesus is anticipating here. This is something that has been well noted. Uh, the great Anglican pastor, J.C. Ryle, wrote about this in reference to verse 12 here. Listen to what he wrote. He said, the full meaning of this promise, greater works than these will he do, is not to be sought in the miracles which the apostles wrought after Christ left the world. What our Lord has in view seems to be the far greater number of conversions, the far wider spread of the gospel, which would take place under the ministry of the apostles than under his own teaching. That that was the case, we know from the book of Acts. This is Ryle continuing. We read of no sermon preached by Christ under which 3,000 were converted in one day as they were on the day of Pentecost. In short, greater works means more conversions. There is no greater work possible than the conversion of a soul, end quote. It fits what is said directly here, but given the emphasis we have seen from our Lord in this gospel, Ryle has that exactly right. And in fact, it helps us to understand what's being said in our passage. Because notice how verse 12 ends. You see that he says, And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. What's he saying? There's something about his returning to the Father that will result in greater works than these being done. His ascension to the Father is the final step in the work that he has come to do. He, his work is finished as he ascends to the Father. Let's zoom out from this a bit for, for just a minute. Think with me about what the Bible has told us about the significance of Jesus finishing his work on earth. We see a number of things in John, but in other places as well. Jesus looked ahead to the completion of his work in John 12, 31, when he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We've seen already that at his work's completion, what happens is Daniel 7 actually happens in history. That Daniel 7 vision becomes a reality. So Jesus ascends out of their sight and what happens? He goes and is presented to the Father. And according to that chapter, upon him then is bestowed, quote, dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is what happens as Jesus' work is completed and he ascends to the Father. We see that when he, <coughs> we see that when he breathes his last as he hangs on the cross, what happens to that great thick curtain that is always blocked off the holy of holies from the rest of the world. It tears right down the middle. That's what happens when his work is completed. 
we see, in reference to his work's completion, a shift described in the Bible. Paul talks about it in Galatians 3.14 like this. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The completion of Christ's earthly ministry, which entails a lifetime of perfect obedience and is capstoned with his atoning death on the cross and his ascension into heaven, we see that the finish of his ministry inaugurates something new in redemptive history. D.A. Carson describes it this way. He wrote, the works that the disciples perform after the resurrection are greater than those done by Jesus before his death, insofar as they belong to an age of power and clarity introduced by Jesus' sacrifice and exaltation. The contrast turns not on raw numbers, but on the power and clarity that mushroom after the eschatological hinge has swung. (laughs) I love that picture. And the new day has, has dawned. I mean, we're talking about nothing less than the inauguration of a new covenant. The covenant that the shed blood of Christ inaugurates. Jesus' ascension to heaven, his return to the Father, means a new day has dawned. As he finishes his work and returns. He says to us, greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now think of this as as the message of comfort to his disciples. Maybe a simple way to boil it all down would be to say, the work of God's kingdom, because Jesus leaves to go to the Father, is in fact going to increase, not decrease. That's a comfort. And to this, Jesus adds something else as well, as he's comforting these who he loves and who are so worried about his departure, he tells them that though he leaves them to go to the Father, he tells them that their access to God is not only going to continue, but that it will continue to be personally assured by him, by Jesus Christ himself. This is the second piece of good news that we hear this morning about his departure. In my departure, your interactions with me will continue. He gives them this piece of comfort in verses 13 and 14. But it is amazing to me how he can give them something so meaningful and we can very often miss it completely in what he says here. I think we often do not see that in verses 13 and 14. And if we miss it, we miss it because there is such an interesting secondary point in those verses that usually grabs our attention above the primary point. Look at verses 13 and 14. See if you can guess what that fascinating, interesting, secondary point might be. He says in verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And again, verse 14, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Where might our attention usually go in those verses? Could it be that it usually goes to the notion of a blank check that seems to be given to our prayers here? 
We either go to the idea ourselves that this is a blank check for our prayers, or we go to the misunderstanding and are very eager to argue with others who think this is a blank check, and in both ways, this is where our attention goes. We fixate on what this might be saying to us about prayer. Now, prayer is not something we dare bypass in these verses, and so what I'd like us to do is to address that matter head on, but in an efficient way, and then set it aside in order to hear what Jesus is saying to them about himself. I do hope we have a clear sense this morning that a blank check is not what God's word gives to our prayers, and it's not what Jesus is promising us here. We need only think of Paul's prayer three times to have his infirmity taken from him. You remember that in 2 Corinthians 12? What was God's response to the Apostle Paul's prayers? His response was, no. He said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul's problem in those prayers wasn't that he forgot to say the words, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of his prayer. That wasn't his problem. Oops, I didn't pray it in Jesus' name, as if that's speaking about the words themselves. His problem was that the specific request he had of relief then from that infirmity was not in conformity to the will of Jesus, and God is not manipulated by our prayers. So verses 13 and 14 is certainly, uh, this is certainly not a blank check that's given to us as we bring our needs and our cares to God. It is, though, it is right for us to draw some conclusions about prayer from this. Just think of what we, we do hear here. We do hear confirmation that we should be asking God to meet our needs in prayer. We have anxieties, we have needs, we have wants. We should be asking him in prayer. We have assurance of that here. We have assurance here that our prayers are heard. And further, we have assurance here that the things we ask in his name are granted to us. And if we understand prayer in his name to be prayer that submits to and aligns with his work and his will, well, then we're well on our way. And we can sense why this is so encouraging to us, because think of what this assures us. This means that everything we ask that aligns with the divine will, he is going to do. His will reigns supreme, and my will doesn't always align with his will. I don't know everything, and I don't know the future, and I'm affected in every way by the curse and by the fall of my own sin. He is not going to grant me a request that he does not want for me. That's what I find assurance of here. He won't. Give me a request that he doesn't want for me. But think about that. What Christian wants something that they know he does not want for them? He knows everything. He loves me more and better than I love myself. He loves my loved ones more and better than I do. And so we are assured by Jesus' statements here 
And we should add to that as well, shouldn't we? He loves his glory more than I do. And we exist for his glory. And we find assurance here that when our great desire is brought before the Lord and he does not grant it, the only reason is that it did not align with his will for me. And that the one whose name is wisdom has other plans. That's a comfort in a very general way that should be powerful. And yet we we also know, all of us understand, that sometimes the, the result of that situation, a great desire brought to him that receives the answer of no, we know that sometimes the result is terribly painful to bear. But my friends, we can bear it if we believe that the one whose will is being accomplished is the one who knows best, who loves best, who is best. If that is true, and only if that is true, then in time we can find contentment and satisfaction in the plans and purposes of God. There is a great deal of comfort for us and clarity in this passage about prayer, isn't there? But now that we have said those things, I would ask you to set them aside because there's something else in verses 13 and 14 that we're meant to notice. They may know that Jesus will still love them when he goes away, but I suspect that's little comfort to them in that moment. They don't want him to love them from a distance. They want him. They want to be with him. And what he's telling them in verses 13 and 14 is that after his departure, their interaction with him is going to extend far beyond being vaguely loved by him from a distance. It's not what their interaction with him is going to be like when he departs. From them. He's telling them that he will be the means by which they approach the Father. And he will be the actor answering their requests. Did you notice that? Whatever you ask in my name, not here, the Father will do. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. In short, even though he's going away, he is not leaving them in every sense of the word. His disciples are hearing already even now what they're going to hear from the risen Christ at the very end of Matthew's gospel when he says to them, Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now that matter of Jesus' presence with them is going to come back up next week in a big way as he says more about his presence with them in verse 18 and following. But it's going to come up then because of its connection with the third piece of good news that we hear about this morning related to his departure. What we find in verses 15 to 17. This is the news that with his departure, another helper is going to come to God's people. It's here that Christ begins to tell them and us about the gift of the Holy Spirit, who it says will be sent after Christ departs. Look again at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper 
to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It starts with a straightforward statement of verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Isn't that a helpful statement to come right after verse 14? His promise in verse 14 about giving us our requests must not give us the impression that we can ever manipulate the exalted Christ or use him for our own ends. We have it exactly backwards in that. We exist for his ends. The whole thing is the other way around. We are his servants. This is who we are. And as God sanctifies us, that reality comes to shape what we want, what we ask for, and even how we ask for it. And really, this is an idea we could dwell on for as long as we wanted to, because this concept of verse 15 is an idea that's reinforced in many other places in the New Testament. The idea that genuine love for Christ by necessity leads to obedience to him. We know we're not talking about perfection, don't we? None of us obey him perfectly. But what we're finding here is we don't obey him perfectly because we don't love him perfectly. And thank God that perfect love from us is not the condition for salvation. Genuine trust in Christ is the condition. But places like these make it clear that God's work in the life of a believer does produce love. It produces love for him. And that it's for that reason that we're told that the fruit of our lives actually bears witness about us, whether we have believed on Christ and found life. And the particular context we're in this morning is one place where our Lord makes that point pretty abundantly. It's here, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It's verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's in the next chapter, John 15, 14. Greater love has no one than this. Notice how these are tied to love, right? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is not a description of how one becomes his friend or how one earns his friendship, but it is a declaration of what becoming his friend produces. It actually changes us. Things like new creature and language like that. Like I said, we could spend as much time on this as we wanted, and we'll be talking about it a lot more as we continue in the farewell discourse. But for this morning, I want us to notice the progression that Jesus goes through in verses 15 and 16. It all moves out from verse 15. He says, if you love me, then when I depart, here are the four results that are going to take place. On the, and you notice, it's, it's amazing to me, every participant involved is named here. If you love me, if I have given you love, life so that you see me and you love what you see, if you love me, Here's what will happen. You will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father to send you another helper. He will send that helper. The helper will stay with you forever. 
There it is. If you love me, here is what the rest of your existence looks like laid out on a map. If you love me, my going doesn't mean a loss of God's love and preservation. Not at all. If you love me, God will be with you forever. And you will be with him. Who is this helper? Verse 17. He is the spirit of truth. He is one who, who, having a relationship with him in this way, is what distinguishes God's people from the rest of the world. Because he is the spirit whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. I wonder if that language reminds you of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. He told him, without a rebirth, without being born again, a person cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. It's the same language here, because it's one and the same thing that's being spoken of. To receive the Holy Spirit in this way is to enter God's kingdom. You cannot belong to God's kingdom. You can't enter it. You can't even see it without the transforming work of this Spirit upon you. And that work is so transformational in a life that it is likened to being born a second time. This is this helper who is to come. Jesus says something else, too. Of course he does. He says something that has caused tremendous difficulty to readers of Scripture throughout church history. Sometimes he leaves us some homework to work on as we study his word. He says about this helper, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He is drawing a distinction there. Do you hear it? He says that the, the Holy Spirit presently dwells with them. This change that's going to happen does not mark the first interaction of the Holy Spirit with you. He dwells with them. But when Christ sends and asks the Father to send another helper, and he does, this helper will be in them. So the question is, what is the nature of the change that he's describing here? What's the extent of the change that he says will take place regarding the Holy Spirit when he ascends to heaven? I hope you can see it must be speaking of some change here because this is a helper who is waiting to be sent in this way until Christ ascends. We notice the same thing back in chapter 7. You might peek back at John 7, 39. There, Jesus had just cried out to the crowds and beckoned to them, Come to me and drink. And he said, Rivers of living water will flow out of their heart if they come to him and drink. Now listen to what verse 39 says. John explains this for us. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So you see the question that this presents? What's the difference in this way between us and believers before Christ's ascension, his ascension? How is our experience of the Holy Spirit the same as or different from them? This is a difficult one. It's a question that I have particular convictions about, and I'll share some of that here. It'll come up as we move forward in John. But I also hope that I can serve as a good example when I say that I try to hold these convictions 
with the right amount of white-knuckledness. Not too little, but not too much. It's a place to tread cautiously. It's a place to tread graciously because, if only for the reason, that we know that faithful interpreters of God's word have wrestled greatly in attempts to answer this question in specific ways. And we know that that happens when there is a limit to the number of details that God's word chooses to give us. It's always going to result in these kinds of wrestlings. Is the Spirit's work to regenerate someone somehow different than the indwelling that's being described here? Yes, no, kind of. There's a whole spectrum of answers to this. And trying to get specific on the answer pits, for example, Augustine against Luther. It pits both of them against John Owen and B.B. Warfield and Sinclair Ferguson. It pits all of those guys against J.I. Packer. You get the sense of um, how difficult this can be. If the question interests you greatly, let me know, and there are good resources I can direct you to. It is very interesting. But listen, here's the good news. All of those people, all of those perspectives um, in a faithful spectrum that I just described would agree on this. Jesus is telling those who love him that with his departure from the world, Christians have not received a diminished nearness to God. They've received an enhanced one. It's why he's going to say very shortly, John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You ever wish you had lived when Christ walked the earth? Maybe you thought that you you could have been closer to God if you could have seen him with your eyes. Um, You would have been better helped, maybe, better guided, better protected. My friends, if you have thought that, you have been mistaken. What God has given to us in joining us to the new covenant and sending his Holy Spirit, not just to be at work in us, but to dwell in us. It was Jesus who said, it is better. It's better. And while it is hard to nail down with certainty how the experience is enhanced, I would suggest to you one key image that I'm convinced is central in the whole concept. It's the image of the temple. Do you want to worship in the presence of God, Old Testament believer? Well, pack your bags. You got to go to Jerusalem and you have to go worship at the temple. God has always been omnipresent, but he had very deliberately located his unique presence in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4, the Jews have it right. But what else did he tell her? He said, a time is coming though, isn't it? When right worship will not necessitate a location. But it did at that time in that way. Why? Because the Spirit of God indwelt the temple. 
And my friend, you know the answer to this question. What has changed in that regard now that Christ's work is finished? 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, you, we, are the temple. Why? Because God has come to abide in us as he abode in the temple. Verse 23, that's exactly how he'll put it next week. God has come to abide in us. Revelation 21 describes the new heavens and the new earth. No temple. Why? Because the temple is wherever God has made his home, and God's presence at that point has now been made to cover the ends of the earth. So what is he announcing in verse 17 in terms of a change? He's telling this group of scared, uncertain followers that in this departure he's just told them about, the result for them will actually be an increased fellowship with God because the Father will send another helper, the Spirit of truth, not just to dwell with them, but to be in them and forever. What we've been hearing here are three pieces of good news about the fact that Jesus left us, left this earth. How amazing is that? He's told them and us that his departure inaugurates a new age in redemptive history. I mean, the end of the present evil age has now begun. It's not ended, we know that, but its, but its end has begun. The beginning of the glorious age to come. It's not fully here, but it has begun. We live in the midst of that already and not yet because he has ascended. We've seen that this is an age in which our nearness to our Savior isn't lost to us. It continues. He continues to hear us. He continues to work on our behalf and to be accessible to us in prayer. That was the second thing we've seen. And then we've heard that the news of, of his departure is going to mean the coming of another helper. And that one is, in fact, the very one who is at work in you right now. If you know the Son savingly, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, we have his promise that he has sent the Spirit to dwell in you and to be at work. And he works in us in a way that is amazing. It is both patient and relentless. God himself is at work in his people, killing idols, conforming us to the image of Christ, teaching us to let go of love for this world and to long for the world that is to come. Next week, we're going to hear our Lord expand more on the nature of that help that the Holy Spirit comes and brings. But in all of it, we're hearing Christ Jesus speak to us about the age that we are living in. And we're hearing him tell us it's an age in which he is at work on our behalf in heaven. And the Spirit is at work within us. But as we're concluding this morning, I would ask you to think about what all this means for us. It seems to me that when we boil all of this down, it's not hard to see the comfort that Christ intended in this for them and for us. We know that this age that we live in is characterized by much difficulty and sin, don't we? As the curse continues to impact every area of our lives. Jesus told us in Matthew 24 that while he is away from us, 
the world will be a place of what? Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. But I would exhort us this morning to join together the command that he gave us there in Matthew 24 and the encouragement that he gives us here in John 14. He said of this time, Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What is the call? Endure to the end. Refuse the slow, hypothermic death of despair that lets love grow cold. Refuse it. Refuse the surrender, the cynical withdrawal and numbness instead of battle. Persist, he says. We need to be commanded. This is going to be difficult. So he commands us. Persist in these things. Persist in conscious faith. Not implicit background faith. Conscious faith that brings statements and promises to the forefront of our mind. Remind each other day after day that the Lord is enthroned on high. He is at work. And he has not forsaken us. And his victory is sure. And when we need confirmation of those assurances, we find places like we've read this morning where our Lord stands there and promises us that in his physical departure, he is not absent from us. He hears us. He is working in us and through us and for us. And my friends, armed with things like that, the mind of Christ can live in us from day to day. As his word dwells richly in our hearts, and therefore his peace rules and protects us, the love of the sun fills us like the waters fill the sea, and by his equipping then do we run the race that he sets before us, strong and brave, because of our knowledge that he is at work in you and in us, in me and in us. And so we are never left alone because of our fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray both confidently but also urgently. We pray these promises that you've given us back to you. God, we pray that you would guard us and keep us. By your kindness, you, you bring us difficulty that makes it very clear to us who know you that if you are not holding on to us, we are lost. And so, God, we pray, hold us fast. We thank you for this spirit that we have read about. The Holy Spirit who has been sent to live in us. Who is not only at work in us, but who by his very presence, as Ephesians 1 tells us, stands as proof, as demonstration of the inheritance that awaits us. God, we worship you as the one who cannot lie and who does not break his promises. Lord, help us to rest in, to hide in your promises every day when things are well, to thank you and celebrate 
your promises, when things are not well, to cling to them. So that even when our eyes do not seem to bear witness to what you have said, we do not fear because we believe you more than we believe our eyes. Thank you, Lord, for the food, for the gift of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.